Welcome to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas, where our fellowship seeks to grow in Christ, manifest love, and make disciples all for the glory of God. My name is Mike Wolfley, and this is episode one of the Faith Pampa Podcast, The Image of God. In this first episode, our inaugural series, Pastor Dylan Hill will be sharing what it means for the Christian to be the image of God, his representative and ambassador to a lost and dying world. In this series, he will discuss what the phrase image of God means, what the church is supposed to be as a corporate body, how and why we are to grow in Christ, how and why we are to manifest love, and how and why we are to make disciples. In this first episode, Pastor Dylan will be focusing on what the phrase image of God means and what the implications of that meaning are for the Christian. He will be looking at the context for the use of the term in its ancient usage, what it means in the contents of the church, and how we are to be that image in this age. And now, episode one, The Image of God. begin today looking at Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. We're going to jump to chapter 2 in just a moment. So beginning at verse 26, then God said, let us make man as our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man as his image, as the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created him. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you go to me to the next page, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Let's pray and seek the Lord's guidance as we enter into a time of study in His Word. Lord, we give you thanks for speaking through your prophets and apostles to deliver us faithfully your Word, that you've preserved this Word for us to this day, that we might study the Word of our God to know the God of the Word. And so today, as we come before you, humbly seeking you out, Lord, we pray that you would deal bountifully with your slaves, that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your instruction, that we might be further conformed by your Holy Spirit to the image of God in Christ, to make your glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. Bless us, Lord, as we enter into this time that we might be equipped, encouraged, and built up to accomplish the task for which you have put before us. Lord, we give you thanks for the mercy and grace you've shown us to make us part of glorifying you, of making your salvation and mercy known to others. Bless us during this time to see clearly and to respond wisely in faithful obedience to you. I pray this, Lord, and we pray also for myself that you would speak to your people and that I might not speak from the empty arrogance of knowledge, but that you would speak here to us 
that your Holy Spirit would be upon our hearts to move us and conform us to the image of your Son. Bless this time to your honor and glory, Lord. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. It is, on the one hand, both incredibly amazing to me and incredibly distressing to me the number of people I encounter as I get older and older who go through life without purpose, aimlessly getting up in the morning, aimlessly having their coffee, aimlessly going to work, aimlessly working, aimlessly coming home with their paycheck, aimlessly paying their bills, aimlessly eating their meals for just a smidge of time to be entertained and relaxed to sleep and aimlessly go back to doing the same thing the next day and aimlessly doing that for five days straight just to get to the weekend so that they can play and relax and then aimlessly do the whole thing over again the next week. And the monotony of this aimless and purposeful, purposeless life is just striking to me. Now, to be sure, there are absolutely people in this world who have a great sense of purpose in what they're doing. They have a mission that they're setting out to accomplish, but it is striking how on whole so many people, if not the majority of mankind, goes aimlessly accomplishing their tasks day after day after day with no greater purpose than to make it to the weekend, to have enough time to watch the video programs that they want to watch, to go play in the activities they want to play, like children, and to sleep. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoy my sleep. But to do this with an out aimless, to do this in an aimless fashion without purpose, this is most of mankind. And this sort of behavior and attitude and perspective is completely unacceptable for those who follow Jesus. It is unacceptable that we who call ourselves by the name of Jesus should walk about without an extreme and clear sense of purpose for why we are here and what we are doing. So today we're going to talk about our need to see the fundamental purpose for which we exist. Why it is that when we trust in Christ, we aren't immediately assumed up into heaven to be in his presence for all eternity. Why it is that when we trust in Christ, we still remain here. What is the purpose for our existence here after that fact? And we're going to begin by looking at the creation of man as sort of the flashpoint of this purpose. Because the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It teaches us what mode of operation God operates in and also what he expects of man. We're going to look at the purpose for which God designed man to function. Now, to be sure, before we begin, although I know it is not obvious, and I, I despise the word obvious because I think things that we say that are obvious are all too frequently not as obvious as we think they are. But I do want to say this as a point of reference. This is an assumed truth for our lesson today, that the highest, chief, supreme, ultimate purpose of all creation in history, and this includes the existence of man, is the glory of God. That is going to go without saying today. It is not obvious, but it is going to go without saying today. The assumption is that that is the purpose of man to bring glory to God. The question we're going to ask today is, if that is the purpose of man, how does he go about achieving this? Because so often we hear, oh, man's purpose is to glorify God. But then we get very little in terms of practical application of what that actually looks like in function. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I also want you to understand that the message you're going to hear today is one which is intended to lay foundations 
for the series of messages we're going to be doing over the course of the next four weeks. So a lot of this is just going to be foundational information so you understand why we're going, where we're going, starting next week. So as we look at the scriptures today, we're going to see the fundamental purpose for which man was created, to glorify God by what we're going to discuss today. Now, you've probably seen this image multiple times over the course of the past month or several weeks in preparation for this series, and you've seen these three Hebrew letters. Now, these three Hebrew letters actually represent the word tselem. Tselem means image. But in order to understand the concept of image in the scriptures, we have to look at it in its original context. We have to look at it in the context of both the grammar and syntax of the Hebrew text of Genesis 1, and we have to look at it in its ancient Middle Eastern context. So to look at the grammar first, let's have a look at this. First, when we look at this particular word, we need to understand that the phrase that is said here in, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, is actually better translated a little bit differently. You'll notice when I read this text, I said that God said, let us make man as our image, not in our image. The reason for this is, first of all, both grammatically and syntactically in the Hebrew grammar, this translation is actually more accurate and faithful to what is intended by this text. In addition to this, man was not created in the image of God because God has no image of his own. He is the invisible God. And so man was created as the image of God, or rather to be the image of God. So let me make this a little clearer. It is not that man is made in the image of God as though God has some sort of divine eternal image from which man was patterned when he was created. Rather, the invisible God who has no image created man to be that image. And so that's what we see with the grammar here to start out with. But now we have to look at it from its historical ancient Middle Eastern context. In the ancient Middle East, the concept of an image was the idea of a representative. And most of the time, it was a representative as found in an idol or in the people's king. Somehow an essence of the deity was in the idol that they worshipped, or the essence of the god they served was in the king himself. Either way, what was happening was, what was happening, these representatives were essentially saying that this place in which these two things are, are the dominion of their gods. Where this idol is, that god has dominion in that place. Where this king is as a representative of the gods, he has dominion as the gods have dominion over this place. And he serves as the representative of their gods. Now, when we come to the Bible, we obviously don't have a one-to-one -one ratio with pagan theology because we're entering into a whole other world. But we have to understand that if that's the Middle Eastern understanding in the ancient world of what an image is, that when Moses writes this in Genesis, he has a similar idea in mind. And that is that the image is intended to represent God to his creation. So man was created to be the image of God, to be sort of a vice ruler or a vice regent in the created world for God. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that man is running the entire universe on behalf of God. In fact, as we saw in our text just a moment ago, man is only given a very small bit of dominion to rule on behalf of God. We'll look at this a little more uh, detailed in just a moment. 
but he is serving in this representative vice-regent role in the beginning. But it also says that man was made in his likeness. And when this word is being used, there's no grammar to be uh, dealt with here. It's very much just as you see it in your translation. But the idea of likeness is that man is not only an accurate representative, but he's also an accurate representation. This is not to say that God has a physical body. And it's not even necessarily, as a lot of historical teachers have suggested, that man has thought or self-consciousness or self-determination or conscience or thought. But rather it has to do with how man is intended to function and reflect the way God functions in relation to his creation. And so this is the background for the idea of man being made as the image of the invisible God. And so our proposition here is this. The Lord created man to bring him glory by being his image, his representative, vice-regent in his creation to bring light, peace, and life. Now, there are many of you who have heard me give this talk before, so bear with me. But we're going to go through this in a little bit of detail today so we can lay some foundation, as I said earlier. So why is it that these three things are what God wanted man to do? Well, at the very beginning of creation, we begin with something that looks a little bit like this. This is the best image representation I've ever been able to find of what we start out with in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So essentially you start out with this formless, dark, chaotic mix of water and matter, and it's out of this that God is either forming certain things and bringing order to it, or he's creating things in association with it. So as we go through and we start looking at what he's doing, we see that darkness is upon this form that he begins with, and what does God do in the first day? He creates light. So he brings light to the darkness. Then he separates the light from the darkness, bringing order to creation, bringing peace to creation. And then he does something fascinating. He names them night and day. In the ancient Middle Eastern context, when you name something, you have authority over it. And so God is declaring his authority over these things. Day two, he creates the sky and separates the waters above from the waters below with the sky. He names them as well, bringing order and his authority to creation. Day three, he separates the land from the water, further creating order in creation, but then he also does something amazing. He brings life to creation because at the beginning he said it was formless and void. Void of what? Void of life. And so here in day three, he creates the first forms of life, plants. Day four, he creates bodies that give light. But they don't just give light. They indicate the changing of times and seasons, bringing even more order and peace to creation. Day five, what does he do? He creates flying animals and sea creatures, more life. And he tells them to propagate further life by being fruitful and multiplying. Day six, what does he do? He creates land animals and man, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. This is a God who is about bringing light to darkness, peace to chaos, and life to lifelessness. That is what he is about, and that is the God we are introduced to in Genesis chapter 1. And, again, I don't want to say obviously, but then the consequence is when man is created, he's given the exact same tasks. 
So I'm going to do this in a little bit of a different order because I'll need to explain one here in just a moment. But the man is told to rule over the earth and subdue it, just like we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And also he's told to keep the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. He is to bring further order. The reality is animals, I don't know if you've had them before, they can get a little out of control and have a mind of their own, and they need to be brought into order. Plants, if you've ever had a plot of land, they can get out of control too, and he is intended to keep it and maintain order and subdue the earth. He also, interestingly, notice what man is given the ability to do. He names the animals indicating the authority that man is given over certain aspects of his creation, over God's creation. Then man is told to be fruitful and multiply, to further propagate life where there is not life. But then you ask, okay, well then how does he bring light to darkness? Well, this becomes a theme that develops through the rest of Scripture, and it's not that he's literally bringing light to darkness, but light becomes a representative metaphor of the goodness of God. And he represents that goodness by doing two things. He obeys the commands of God to do what he was told to do, to rule over the earth and subdue it, and to bring life where there is none. And he doesn't partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by doing these two things, doing what he was told and not doing what he was told not to do, he's representing the light of God's goodness, the light of God's ability to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good in the eyes of the Lord, and what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so by doing so, man represents the light of God's goodness to his creation. So this is how man is said to be properly the image of God. He fulfills the same modes of operation God does. He brings light to darkness, peace to chaos, and life to lifelessness. This is what man was created to do. These are the three modes of operation that man is intended to do in order to bring glory to God because then it reflects the God who does the exact same thing. There's literally no other purpose for which man was created. None. The Lord created man to bring him glory by being his image, his representative to bring light, peace, and life. But then what happens? This image that God created brought sin into the world. He rejected this purpose and opted for what was right in his own eyes, in the eyes of men. And so he fell into darkness and evil, an evil that continues to grow through Cain and Abel interacting and Cain killing Abel, through Lamech killing a couple of men, through other men bringing chaos into the world, all the way until we get to Genesis 6, chapter, or excuse me, Genesis 6, verse 5, where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And bear in mind, brothers and sisters, this does not change after the flood. Noah sins, and God makes the exact same comment after the flood that man is evil from his youth. This is the evil that's been brought into the world, the darkness. But also, again, chaos. You get Cain and Abel interacting and Cain killing Abel. You get Lamech who's killing men, starting cities that are chaotic. All men become worse and worse to the point where God judges in the flood. And then, as I know many of you come to Genesis chapter 5 in your year-long Bible reading, and you hit a genealogy with names and dates 
But this genealogy is very important in Genesis chapter 5 because there is a phrase that repeats almost every single paragraph in this section. It is the phrase, and he died. And the importance of this phrase is this. Death did not stop with the first man and woman. It continued generation after generation after generation. Now where there was propagation of life, there is now propagation of death. So because of sin, darkness, chaos, and death have entered into creation. This is the state we find man in from the first man and woman to this day. And it got so bad that, again, the Lord eventually judged the world in the flood. But, again, this did not relieve the problem because Noah comes off the ark, and sometime later he plants a vineyard, gets drunk. His oldest son does something deplorable to him, shaming him for his sin in front of his brothers. And it just continues on until finally the Lord takes an unexpected turn in history. And he approaches one man in the city of Ur in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, southern Iraq, and he chooses this one man, this one man, Abram. And he gives him the same task, to represent the light of God's goodness. How? By trusting that when God says, I need you to leave where you're at, leave your family, leave everything you know, do the exact opposite of a faithful tribesman in that time and leave all of them and go to a land far away that I'm just going to show you once you get there. He's representing the light of God's goodness. What was good in the eyes of the Lord was for him to go and to trust in the Lord. Now, I will tell you, Abraham struggled to trust with the Lord up and down all through the narrative of Genesis, all the way to Genesis 22, where he finally goes up, and because he fears the Lord, he goes up to sacrifice his son, and the Lord stops him. Abraham was to instruct his house in the peace and order of God. We see this in Genesis chapter 18. And then, interestingly, the command is not for Abraham to be fruitful and multiply, but rather when he's going about doing these things, God would be the one to multiply Abraham's house by providing a son who would carry on the covenant promises. We see this in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. And that household goes to Isaac, then to Jacob, the exact same commands and expectations, until finally they multiply out into a nation that moves into Egypt during a famine, at the end of Genesis, and we begin the book of Exodus with this nation in bondage in Egypt. And he chooses this nation, this group of people, Israel, to be the image that man had failed to be. They were given a covenant and law so they could specifically be a kingdom of priests, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Understand that a priest's job in the ancient Middle East was to represent God to the people and vice versa, but importantly for our context today, to represent God to the people. And so if this is a kingdom of priests, they as a nation were expected to represent God to all the nations as his image. They were to represent the light of his goodness by following his law, which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. They were to exhibit the peace and order that would come from their obedience in keeping the law. And then, once again, the Lord would be the one who would multiply them. But then, they failed. They entered into a time of kingdom period, and they failed to keep the law. And per the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30, they were taken into exile. Seventy years later, they returned from exile, but when they did... They were so affected by their experience that their reaction was to go overly the other direction 
and to create an even more oppressive law than the law of God to make people follow. And out of this, we get the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and other groups that we read of in the New Testament text, these people who expected people to follow all these traditions of men in order to help them follow the law of God. And really, it was just more oppressive on the people in the end. And this is a lot of what Jesus speaks to in the Gospels. But here is the problem that is made clear in the Hebrew Scriptures. Man has become so severely marred by the corruption of sin and death that he is incapable of being the true image of God as he was intended to be. He simply cannot be who he was intended to be because he can't bring light, he can't bring peace, and he can't bring life because all he manages to bring is darkness, chaos, and death. And this is the exact point that Paul makes with regard to the law. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he says, look, one of the purposes of the law was to demonstrate this. The law is actually, the Lord says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. So why couldn't they keep it? Because that's how bad sin is. The law points out just how bad sin is. It makes sin all the more obvious so that it is undeniable how sinful and corrupt and dead man is. And so we read elsewhere, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The implication for our context today, there is no way that man can represent the glory of God by bringing light, peace, and life. It is not possible because we fall short of it. What's more, we've read multiple times in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 lately, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, we were born with an inheritance of the wrath of God. Every single one of us. That's what we had coming as soon as we were born. But because Christ entered in, we were saved. But that's another matter for here in a little bit. Man cannot adequately represent God as his image any longer. It's over. We've lost our ability to do it. But then the Lord accomplished something truly amazing. And awesome. And I use that term. I know we throw around the word awesome quite a bit, but this is truly awesome in the strictest sense of the term. The Lord sent Jesus to be the image we could not be. It's Jesus who then becomes the true and perfect image of God. I know that I am about to load you up with an incredibly large amount of Scripture, but I feel like it's necessary to make this point. He's the image of the invisible God. And I'm going to say this also. I could have given you probably five times more scripture to make this point that I'm going to give you today. These are just a small sampling. John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11. Philip, one of the disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, 
Do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, Jesus is an accurate and faithful representation of God. And they should have seen that. But if you want to get more specific, let's look at Paul's statement in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him are all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I'll come back to the rest of that quote here in just a moment. He is the only true image of God. So if that is the case, your next question should be, well, but does he bring light to darkness? Does he bring peace to chaos? And does he bring life to death? I'm glad you asked the question. So first of all, he is the light to counter the darkness. Again, this is just a very small sampling. John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 12, verse 46, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so he is the light to counter the darkness. He is the peace to counter the chaos. Now, there's three ways in which he achieves this. First of all, he brings peace between God and man. Because, brothers and sisters, when we were born, we were, from the scriptures, Romans chapter 5, enemies of God. We were the enemies of God. And because of Christ, he has reconciled that relationship. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, and finishing the quote I said from earlier. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, peace between God and man. <clears throat> but he also brings peace between peoples who are in conflict against each other, particularly between Jews and Israelites and the rest of the nations. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, I'll just summarize by saying, Christ breaks down the dividing walls between these two peoples and unites them in himself. And all peoples... The enemies of the United States are not necessarily our enemies. Our Persian brothers and sisters in Iran, fastest growing church in the world. We are not enemies of our Persian brothers and sisters because that dividing wall has been broken down. And finally, he brings peace in the struggle and suffering of our lives. John chapter 14, verse 27, my, uh, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Paul, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Surpasses in the sense of its value. If you don't understand, that's okay. We'll get you there. But the more important value is that you have peace in Christ, despite your lack of understanding. And so not only does he bring light to the counter of the darkness and peace to counter chaos, he also brings life to counter death. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Life. John 6, 33 through 35. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, namely Jesus. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, and this is Jesus comforting Mary after the death of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans chapter 6, verses 20, uh, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Colossians 3, 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He is absolutely the only true and perfect image of God who brings light to counter the darkness, peace to counter the chaos, and life to counter death. But here's the problem. How can we, who are marred by the corruption of sin and death, ever be the image of God again as we were intended to be? Here's the reality. The only way in which we as Christians might be the image of God in our context is by being in Christ and proclaiming the good news of his light, peace, and life. A little bit of an extended quote here, but Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Listen to how we are in Christ, how we have entered into participating in his being the image of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, we participated in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So just as we died in his death and were buried in his death, we were raised to newness of life in his resurrection that we might have life. For if we have been united in his death, with him in his death like the, his, Excuse me, let me try that again. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, 
will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also may consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are in him. We are functioning as the image of God, but only as much as we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Galatians 3, 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And so we become the image of God as we are in Christ, but it's not just being in Christ. It is also our being conformed to his image, looking like Jesus. Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Colossians 1, 28, Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This means looking more like Jesus. And then a passage that I love so dearly, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, but he not only reconciled us to himself, what does Paul say? And he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. We have work to do. It's not just that we are in Christ and saved unto eternal life in his kingdom. We have work to do. Hear this again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, all of us, are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are supposed to represent him, Yes, we are in Christ so that he can be the one who is the image of God. But we're also supposed to be conformed to his image so that we can be faithful representatives and ambassadors proclaiming this ministry of reconciliation to all we encounter. So in conclusion, and I'm paraphrasing here from an article written by a man named D.J.A. Kleins who wrote an article. If you'd like to get it, I can get it to you. It's called The Image of God in Man and I paraphrase here, in Christ we see what the true man is meant to be. In the Hebrew scriptures, all men are the image of God, but then clearly marred by sin and death. In the New Testament, where Christ is the only unique image of God, men are the image of God only insofar as they are redeemed and alive in Christ, reconciled to God in Christ, and conformed to the image of Jesus by his grace. So it is not only being identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, but it's also us being further conformed to his image, looking more and more like Jesus. Why? So that we can tell people about him and represent the light, peace, and life 
of Jesus to those who are in darkness, chaos, and death. With that said, then, we need to understand that. And this is our main idea for today. The singular purpose of the Christian is to glorify God by further advancing the good news of Jesus, his true image, making known the light of Christ to those in darkness, the peace of Christ to those in chaos, and the life of Christ to those in death. So let me break this down for you, what this means for us. I want you to listen very carefully because I know that I can be easily misunderstood by what I'm about to say, or you get an exaggerated understanding of what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. This means that every thought, intention, and action which you have or do should be able to be connected directly or without convolution to the advancement of this purpose. Let me break that down. Every thought, intention, and action that you have or do, you should be able to say, here's this thought, intention, and action, and I can either connect that directly to advancing the gospel, making the light, life, and Christ, uh, light, peace, and life of Christ known to the lost and dying, or I can say every, this particular thought, intention, or action, I can connect very clearly to multiple other sets of connections to get to that point. However, if you do it in a very convoluted manner, you're going to start running into things that are not honoring to God, and you're really just doing because you want to do it, or because you're greedy, or because you're prideful. You're taking a lot of sidesteps to accommodate your flesh and your sin rather than getting to the advancement of the gospel. So that's what I mean by having a non-convoluted path from the thought, intention, and action to the advancement of the gospel. Sometimes it'll be very direct. In the case of someone walking up to you and saying, here's the gospel of Jesus. My thought is to tell people about Jesus. My intention is to talk to that person, and I walk up to them, and I tell them about Jesus. Thought, intention, and action directly to the advancement of the gospel. On the other hand, it might be I'm building a particular relationship based on certain commonalities so that we can start having spiritual conversations so that sharing the gospel is very natural, and I can draw a very clear and not, and not a convoluted line between the two. So let me put this in the negative. This means that whatever thought, intention, or action you have which cannot be connected without convolution to the advancement of this purpose, it has to go. Again, what do I mean by without convolution? This means you can connect it directly or you connect it reasonably and God-honoring fashion to the advancement of the gospel. So let me give some analogies here. As I used to tell my students, I'm an equal opportunity picker honor. Let's talk about fishing. I love fishing just as much as the next man. But when your objective is, well, I've, I've got to get that really nice boat so the other fishermen that I'm in association with will take me seriously, or, ooh, I've got to get that really nice rod so they'll take me seriously, or, man, if I don't do all these other things that all these other guys are doing, then they won't take me seriously, and, and then we can't build good relationships and, and then share the gospel effectively within that context. No, what you're doing is you're accommodating your greed. And you're accommodating your desire for your hobby over against the advancement of the gospel. Now, if you want a little self-analysis here from me, I know my problem. I look at Barnes & Noble, and I know. I look at it and say, okay, how can I justify getting this book that I want to read 
in order to connect that to my better understanding of the gospel to share it. And sometimes I just can't do it. It's purely entertainment purposes, and I can't make that connection. And that's not right of me either, because I can't make that connection. And that's something very small, buying a book. But it's taking the time. I'm using up a lot of time reading that book that I could be doing to advance the gospel. Ladies, it's your turn. Um, and this was an obvious one to me, and this is probably me stereotyping, I'm, I'm sure, but wardrobe choices, shopping, shoes. I think I've discussed this before, the, of just the vaults filled with shoes. Um, are, those purpose, are those purposeful purchases to advance the gospel? Now, I'm not saying that they can't be, <laughs> but we have to be very careful about what we're spending our money on, what we're spending our time doing. Now, these are just simple, friendly examples. I'm not trying to be controversial here. But we could get deep into this and start asking some very hard questions about the choices we're making with our money, choices we're making with our time, choices we're making with our skill building, choices we're making in our relationships. All these things, if we cannot draw a line without convolution from those things to the advancement of the gospel, they have to go. However, my question today is not how that should look. We're going to get there in the next few weeks. So next week, we're going to be talking about what is church? What is the church as a body supposed to be? To be the image of God, what does the church have to look like? We're going to be discussing that next week. We're going to get into the practicality of this issue next week, what this actually looks like to draw a direct line between the thoughts, intentions, and works of the church and the advancement of the gospel. And it may seem obvious, but as I said, we need to kick that word to the curb. The week after that, we're going to talk about growing in Christ. What does it look like for us to further be conformed to the image of Jesus, to look more like him, to grow in Christ, in maturity and Christ? And by the way, this is the first phrase in our mission strategy here at Faith Bible Church growing in Christ. You are going to see this phrase a lot. The week after that, we're going to talk about manifesting love. This is the second phrase you're going to see in our ministry focus. Growing in Christ, manifesting love. Making the love of Jesus known so that people understand that he loves them and cares about them. Building sacrificially loving relationships to the point where spiritual conversations are common and sharing the gospel of Jesus is natural. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about making disciples. What does it look like for us to begin to practically begin to share the truths of Scripture and get to the point where we're sharing the gospel? We're going to get there, but that's not my question today. My question today is this. Why would you not make this purpose to be the image of God, to advance the gospel, why would you not make that your singular purpose in your life? Why would you not do that? Well, let's talk about the reasons why. Let me enumerate some of them. All these, this is probably not an exhaustive list, but these are the ones that came to mind. First of all, to be perfectly honest with you, you may not have trusted in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, why would you have this purpose? You don't even know Jesus. You can't have this purpose because you're not in the true image of God to begin with. And that's fair. And you know what? If that's you today, we're here to talk with you. And we would call you this day and urge you and beseech you this day 
Be reconciled to God in Christ. Trust in the person and work of Jesus alone to enter into his kingdom eternally. Today is the day to do that. Don't put it off. Have those conversations. Have those discussions. But if you have trusted in Christ, you might simply be experiencing pure and innocent ignorance. And I mean ignorance in the strictest sense of the term, just not knowing. You just didn't know that this is the way you were supposed to be living as a Christian. That's fair. You may not have ever heard this kind of teaching before. That's fair. Now you do. Or, for that matter, you may have a completely mistaken understanding about what the church is and what being a Christian is all about. Church isn't about gathering for a social gathering to talk about similar ideas about faith and to get group therapy session. That's not what we're here for. We've been talking a lot about the fact that the church is mistaken for a therapeutic community. It's not. It is for comfort, and it is to bring peace to those who are suffering, but ultimately it's to get people equipped and able to be the image of God in Christ. Or you might not even see how all the pieces fit together. You may be familiar with all these concepts, but you haven't really drawn a straight line through and made all the connections. But then we get to the point where you see what I'm saying, and then you make the excuse. Dylan, are you asking me to just evangelize all the time? Every conversation I ever had is about evangelizing. Every single word that comes out of my mouth is the gospel. Every single interaction I have is about sharing Jesus. If you want to, great. Um, that's not a normal life that most people live, but, but nonetheless, it's great. You can share the gospel all the time. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying everybody should be an evangelist. What I am saying is that every single one of us has a responsibility to aim our lives and everything in our lives toward the advancement of the gospel. It is not an option. Are you a carpenter? Great. How are you aiming that, that entire thing of being a carpenter toward the advancement of the gospel? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Great. How are you aiming the, all of what it means to be a stay-at-home mom toward the advancement of the gospel? Are you a farmer? Great. How are you aiming everything about being a farmer toward the advancement of the gospel? Whatever it is, you are supposed to be doing it. For me, it's easy. I'm a preacher. I get up here and preach the gospel every week. And then I interact with lots of people and advance the gospel that way. It's easy for me to make that connection. For you, it might be more difficult. I totally understand. But don't use this as an excuse to not do it. That I'm just saying, oh, well, you just want me to evangelize all the time. No, but I want you to work toward evangelizing by advancing the gospel in whatever you're doing. But then we come to the final one, and this is the hard one. I want you to listen to me very carefully on this one. Over the course of these five weeks, you are going to be shown clearly and distinctly what it means for your entire life to be focused on the one thing about advancing the gospel. At that point, you will have no excuses any longer, and the only reason why you're not doing it is because you are in outright disobedience and rejection of God's purpose for your existence as a believer in the Lord Jesus. And you are wanting to do the things you want to do rather than the things you have been called and commanded to do. There will be no excuse after these five weeks if you've heard these messages. If you refuse to do this, you will have to acknowledge you are rejecting the commands of your God. The singular purpose of the Christian is to glorify God by further advancing the good news of Jesus, his true image, 
making known the light of Christ to those in darkness, the peace of Christ to those in chaos, and the life of Christ to those in death. And if this is the case, then after today, after the next few weeks of messages, you will have no excuse for not making this the purpose, the singular purpose of your existence and the singular purpose of our fellowship together. And again, we're going to show you how. That's what we're doing for the next four weeks. I'm going to show you how to connect those points. I'm going to show you practically how to put all that together. But again, today I'm asking, why do you resist? Why have you resisted this? Because in the end, your only excuse is going to be disobedience and rejection of God's command. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater work. There is no greater mission. There is no greater focus. There is no greater objective. There is no greater purpose than to advance the good news of Jesus to the glory of God. And so why on earth would you do anything other than that? When will you decide that if your faith in Jesus is true, that the only purpose for which you exist is to glorify God by further advancing the good news of Jesus? When will you decide? If it's not today, when will you decide? May God bless this preaching of his word that we may, by the power of his Holy Spirit, be further conformed to the image of God in Christ Jesus to make his glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your mercy and your grace. Again, that you have seen fit to make us part of bringing your glory, the knowledge of your glory, your salvation to the lost and dying to bring the light of Christ to those who are in darkness, to bring the peace of Christ to those who are in chaos, and the life of Christ to those who are in the condemnation of death because of the corruption of sin. That you have graciously elected to have us be part of that. We give you thanks and praise. Lord, we know that we have, throughout our lives, we know that there are so many things that we have not conformed to this purpose. And we know that it will take a lifetime to prune away, to call those things, to remove them from our lives. And so we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would enter into our hearts to help us see clearly all those things which are not focused on advancing the mission of Jesus. Lord, we repent of this, and we know that we're going to come before you and repent of it time and time again as we see more and more of our lives and what is in our lives that is not driving that purpose. So we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. We know that you are good and merciful and mighty, Lord, and we praise your name. Bless us as we go out that we begin this process of asking the hard questions, asking the questions of how, how are we supposed to do this, to trust in your grace to see clearly the parts of our lives that do not conform to this purpose. And then only by your grace and your power will they do so. And so we pray for your power and your grace to continually conform our lives to that purpose. Lord, glory, praise, and honor be to you. We pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus. Pastor Dillon 
I think we have all too often heard that we are supposed to glorify God, but rarely do we get any specifics on what this should look like apart from random lists from a smattering of verses throughout the Bible. This has been my experience as well. Over the years, I've found it increasingly difficult to understand why pastors and teachers have not been more specific on this point. Here's the reality which has been made very clear throughout the history of the church. The chief, supreme, and highest purpose of all creation in history is the glory of God. Therefore, this is the chief, supreme, and highest purpose of man as well. So if this is the case, then we need to be very clear on how this is achieved. We're to help to bring light to darkness, peace to chaos, and life to death through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Now, we'll talk even more about what this looks like throughout this series, but I want to go back to a central comment I made in this message. And again, this is a paraphrase and expansion on the words of DJA Kleins. In Christ, we see what the true man is meant to be. In the Hebrew scriptures, all men are the image of God, but then clearly marred by sin and death. In the New Testament, where Christ is the only unique image of God, Men are the image of God only insofar as they are redeemed and alive in Christ and conformed to the image of Jesus by his grace. So it's only through Christ then that we are able to do the work of being the image of God. And so this is why it is so important that we share the good news of Jesus and focus our attention on that work. Exactly. Well, we will continue our series in being the image of God in our next episode what is church? We hope you can join us. Well, thank you for listening to the Faith Pampa podcast, the podcast teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas. We hope you can join us again. For more information on Faith Bible Church, you can visit our website at www.faithpampa.org. We hope that this time has grown you in Christ and helped you to know how better to manifest the love of God and to make disciples all for His glory.